Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Summary greetings from Gloucester, Massachusetts, which is why you might hear some aquatic birds in the background. Most of today's show will be taken up by an interview with James Foreman Jr., whose book Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America was published in April by Farrar Strauss. At the end of the show, we'll hear a reprise of an interview with Kayanga Yamada-Taylor from June 2016 on a political strategy for dealing with the disgrace that is mass incarceration. James Foreman Jr. is a professor at the Yale Law School. He's the son of the distinguished civil rights activist James Foreman, who was most notably associated with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, in the 1960s. The younger Foreman spent six years as a public defender in D.C., an experience that is central to the analysis presented in his book, Locking Up Our Own Crime and Punishment in Black America. In my opening question, I asked Foreman to explore the limitations of the new Jim Crow argument, which he expressed in review of Michelle Alexander's book published in the Yale Law Journal. He demurred some, but what I was getting after is a point that he makes in that review, that while the original Jim Crow made no class distinctions among black people, mass incarceration does. Most of our present population, regardless of color, comes from the ranks of the poor. Just 1-2% to of the people behind bars, for example, have college degrees, and the risk of a black college graduate going to prison actually declined between 1979 and 1999. There is no doubt that our criminal justice system is deeply racist, but saying that it revives Jim Crow obscures some important points. Okay, on to James Foreman, Jr. The Michelle Alexander book, The New Jim Crow, has been a very influential thing. Uh, it's uh, shaped the way a lot of people think about the problems of mass incarceration. I first became aware of your work with your review of, uh, of her book, and then your book develops some of those themes. But uh, the, the whole New Jim Crow model is... Uh, not necessarily a fruitful way to think about mass incarceration, is it? Well, I think it partially is. So I would want to start there because I think in a lot of ways my book, my book is building on that work um, more so than, you know, rebutting it. And so I don't think we can understand the history of this country and certainly not the history of the criminal justice system without... Um, really deeply understanding the role that racism has played in forming every structure of our of our government, of our constitution, um, of our legal system, of our criminal justice system, of our policing structures. And so I think that uh, the New Jim Crow, and not just the New Jim Crow, but books like Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, Between the World and Me by ta Coates, and many other books that are, are less well-known but that academics have been producing over the last 10 and 15 years, I think have done, and, and really more than that, 20, 25 years, have done an amazing job of, of documenting all of the ways in which indifference to black suffering has helped to create the criminal justice system that we have today. For me, and, and indeed, those motivations and that critique uh, is part of what led me to become a public defender in the 1990s. Um, and what I learned when I became a public defender in Washington, D.C., and practiced in a majority African-American jurisdiction with a police force that was a majority black, and judges, many of whom were African-American, and a legislature that was passing drug, gun laws and drug laws that was majority African-American. What I learned was that Although that critique is, is, is correct in many ways, it doesn't tell the whole story because I was grappling with why so many of my African-American counterparts in the criminal justice system didn't see it as the civil rights issue. I became a public defender because I saw this work as the civil rights issue of my generation. But when I go in and I practice in criminal court in Washington, D.C., and I have clients that are receiving extremely long sentences, um, handed down in many cases from African-American elected officials and judges, I have to stop and ask myself the question, is this the whole story? That is to say, is, is racism and white supremacy, which is central, but is it the whole story? And that's what I try to explore in my book, is the other forces that are at play um, that help to explain how we got to 2.2 million people in prison, 7 million people under criminal justice supervision. So I think I'm adding to um, that account 
as opposed to contradicting it. So you open the book with uh, some stories from the, the 70s of uh, first uh, there was an effort in the D.C. City Council and D.C. at this point had just won home rule from Congress, right? Uh, so we had a, a new um, city council, new mayor, new system of government, uh, and they were contemplating uh, reducing the penalties for marijuana possession uh, at a time when that was a popular move. Uh, it's taken, uh, what, 40 years to get back to there now. But... Um, what about that issue of, of, uh, of uh, softening the penalties for, for marijuana possession? How did that play out in, in the mid-1970s? Well, this is one of the things that I found the most striking when I began the research. So I knew that I wanted to write a book that really tried to look at what's happened in our criminal justice system over the last 40 and 50 years through the lens of African-American elected officials, judges, prosecutors, police chiefs, police officers, and activists. And D.C. was the natural city to use as a study because, as you say, in 1975, D.C. Achieved, achieved a measure of home rule. And what that included was the right to elect a majority black city council. And through some quirks in our legal structure, that meant that the city council, after a couple of years, had the authority to pass criminal law, right? So what normally would be the responsibility of state government in D.C. was passed by this majority black city council. In the first city council in 1975, which included, among other people, Marion Barry, who would later famously go on to become mayor, 11 out of the 13 members were African-American. And one of the first things that the city council debated was whether to decriminalize marijuana, which, as you say, was something that was being contemplated and had passed in a number of states. Jimmy Carter was even talking about it at the federal level as a possibility. In D.C., the push for marijuana decriminalization came from one of the two white members of the city council, actually, a guy, a guy with an unusual biography, Dave Clark. He went to Howard Law School. He worked with Martin Luther King organizing the Poor People's March in 1968, and he went on to become a lawyer for poor people himself before deciding to put his hat in the ring and run for city council, and he won. And he pushed immediately to decriminalize marijuana possession. What was fascinating to me was the opposition. The opposition came from principally African-American ministers and a black city council member, black nationalists, also a minister by the name of Doug Moore. And here's the crucial thing to understand about their opposition. Because if you had asked me before I went into this research, first of all, I would have been surprised to know that that had been the leading source of the opposition, given everything we know today about the damage the drug war has done to African-American communities. But more than that, I would have assumed, well, if people were opposed, they were people that just didn't have the black community's best interests at heart. But that's not it. It's more complicated than that. Uh, the black ministers who were led the opposition very much did so out of a real heartfelt concern that marijuana would be a gateway drug to harder drugs, including heroin. To an extent, many people laugh at that today, but it's important to understand that in 1975, the nation had just come off of its first real round of battle with, with heroin addiction. In D.C. in 1963, they tested everybody entering the D.C. jail for heroin. 3% of the people tested positive. By 1969, it was 45%. So this is an epidemic that's destroying black communities. And lots of members of the black establishment and influential African Americans are saying, hey, don't decriminalize marijuana, because if you do, our young people will start there and move on to heroin. Jackie Robinson, the, the baseball hero, went around to black churches and community groups in the early 1970s and said, don't decriminalize marijuana because my son, Jackie Jr., is a heroin addict and he started with marijuana, right? So this moved a lot of the opposition. So it wasn't that they didn't care about black young people. They did care. They just underestimated the harms of criminalization and they overstated the harms of marijuana use. You say at several points in the book that uh, we look and see this system now where we've got millions of people behind bars, you know, millions more uh, under control of the criminal justice system. And it's easy to forget that it took a whole series of decisions over the years, little decisions in many different jurisdictions to get us to this place. I mean, this is a really complicated history. There's no simple story of how we got to over two million people behind bars. Well, I think that's right. And that, in a lot of ways, is the heart of my argument. I think it's so tempting when we look at something so massive um, and such a, a profound human rights crisis. It's tempting to try to search for 
you know, a particular speech. You know, I read book after book that says, you know, well, Nixon launched the war on crime and then Reagan launched the war on drugs. And and of course they did. They did these things. And those absolutely contributed. But what I want to point out to readers is so many of the smaller, tiny decisions that we don't we barely even notice that in many cases were made by people who were much more well-intentioned than somebody like a Richard Nixon or a Ronald Reagan that contributed to this. So one of the stories that I tell in the book is about the city council member. Actually, it's the same one, Dave Clark, and how in the early 80s, he's bombarded with letters from constituents saying that there are addicts uh, nodding off. You know, heroin has come back and people are sitting on my stoop and they're nodding off and they're bothering my kids as I walk to school and you got to do something about it. And what Dave Clark does is he takes those letters and he sends them to the head of the relevant public agency. He gets a letter back from the head of the agency who says, yeah, we're on it. We got you, Councilman Clark. We received this complaint. Clark forwards those letters back to the constituent and you think, okay, well, he's done his job. But what's the agency that he sends it to? Does he send it to the head of the Department of Mental Health, the head of addiction services, the head of drug treatment? No, he sends it to the police chief. Because in this country, even somebody like a Dave Clark, who's a liberal, who's pro-legalization, somebody like him still thinks of an addict sitting on a corner, nodding off, bothering a citizen as a police problem, not as a treatment problem, not as a counseling problem, not as a mental health and recovery problem. The point that I make in the book is those sorts of tiny decisions like that, the choice to refer a letter from a constituent to the police chief rather than to the head of addiction services. Those choices, over 50 states, 3,000 counties across our criminal justice system over 50 years help to produce mass incarceration. And just one more thing on that. It's not just the system that we think of. That is to say the police prosecutors, probation officers. It's also private employers. So I really challenge people. There are a number of stories in my book where People got arrested for small amounts of marijuana in one case, uh, heroin in another case, and then they lost their jobs. That's not the responsibility of the criminal justice system in, mar- in, in large part. That's the responsibility of private industry. So I want everybody who's listening to this audience thinking about this issue turning to themselves and asking, well, what are, what are my employer's policies about hiring people with criminal convictions? Do we have a blanket exclusion? Do we discourage people even from applying by having the second or third question on the application form be, do you have a criminal conviction? In many cases, the answer will be yes. And what I want to say to people is you're responsible too, right? We're, that's one of the arguments of this book is that we can't call this a they problem. We can't call this a them problem. We need to understand this as an us problem. We've created it and we've got to fix it. And that means all of us. I'm speaking with James Foreman Jr., author of Locking Up Our Own. Your colleague, uh, James Whitman, argues you know, that the, puni- the culture of America is deeply punitive, you know, going way back. These are just many manifestations of this longstanding punitive impulse. It seems commonsensical to refer an issue like this to the police department, but it also seems like the American reflex is to, to turn to law and order as a response rather than uh, something more sympathetic. Well, that's exactly right. And I think you see this in all aspects of our politics and culture, um, not just in the criminal justice system. But so, for example, you know, we're currently debating right now whether to, uh, you know, the Congress and the Senate are considering and it seems likely that they will pass. Who knows? um, Something that would devastate and gut health care for poor people, for working people, for older people in this country, right? They want to destroy uh, Medicaid, um, which is responsible for 49% of the births in this country. 67% of the people in nursing homes are paid for by Medicaid. That is just mean-spirited. And that kind of impulse, that notion that if you're struggling, if you're working class, if you're on the margins, we aren't going to do anything for you through government. What we're going to do is we're going to make life as easy and as good as possible for people at the top and the rest be damned. That instinct, that's an aspect of the punitiveness, right, that Jim Whitman is talking about. And then it also plays itself out in the criminal justice system because, and you see these arguments all the time, whenever there's a discussion about whether we should provide better health care for prisoners, or better education for people who are incarcerated, somebody turns around and says, well, I don't have health care. 
I don't have, my higher education isn't funded. Why are you funding higher education for people who are incarcerated? To which I want to say, you're right. You don't have health care and you don't have higher education paid for. And those are problems. And as a society, we got to fix them. But because we're so mean spirited in some of those other dimensions, then it almost becomes natural to become mean spirited toward the, this class of people that we've you know, defined as the other and we've defined as despised. One of the decisions that got us to this, uh, this state of mass incarceration was the spread of mandatory minimums. And uh, D.C. had a referendum on that. Could you tell us a story of the D.C. referendum on uh, mandatory minimums? Absolutely. Uh, and the mandatory minimums, I think we have to connect those to the related topic, which gets a little bit of t less attention, but I try to connect it in a book, which is to the maximum. So the maximum available sentence is one issue, and then the mandatory minimum is another issue, and they're, and they're related. So in D.C., there was a... A, a move to revise the drug laws. They hadn't been updated since the 1930s and 1940s. And everybody agreed that they had aspects that needed to be fixed. They treated possession and sale the, the same way. They lumped a lots of drugs together that should have been treated differently. So they needed to be reformed. But there was a push from uh, African-American city council member by the name of John Ray and a retired police chief by the name of Bertel Jefferson and also African-American. And they pushed not just to um, rationalize the laws and update them, but to make them much, much tougher. And what they wanted to do was they wanted mandatory minimums, both for drug offenses and also for gun offenses, for possession of a gun during a crime, et cetera. And they wanted much longer maximums. And they, they got the maximums initially through the city council, and then they went back to the voters a year later and they said to the voters, hey, your elected representatives didn't go far enough. They did not pass mandatory minimums, and they presented that issue to the voters. And in an era when crime was rising, heroin, as I mentioned before, was coming back again in the early 1980s. Lots of people were scared. Uh, the left and progressives didn't have great answers. They weren't presenting great alternatives. They really that the move from the left was just to say, well, don't do that. Mandatory minimums aren't a good thing. Treatment beds were underfunded. There was only one treatment bed for every 10 people who needed it at the time. And in such an era and in such a context, they were able to get the city's voters to pass mandatory minimum laws. And the important thing here to understand is that they passed in every part of the city and by a wide margin. So this was a city that was at the time over 60% African-American voting to impose mandatory minimum sentences that in the end would have devastating consequences for um, many in that same community. And it's important to remember this is, you know, this city, like much of the rest of the country, uh, the primary victims of crime at this point were, were poor black people. They're the ones who are uh, getting shot. They're the ones whose kids were dying of drug overdoses. Um, so there, there's a, a definite desperation in the air, and uh, people uh, lurched after what seemed like a, a simple solution. That's exactly right. That's a really nice summary of, of, of the situation. I mean, one of the things that I found when I went and did the research a lot, of, a lot of the former council members have turned their papers over to various libraries and archives around the city. George Washington University has the fullest collection. And when you go and you read, and, and those papers include letters from citizens. And when you go and read letters from mostly African-American citizens to mostly African-American elected officials in the 70s and 80s, the pain and the anguish and the desperation really leaps off the pages. You see people writing and saying, you know, I feel like a prisoner in my own home. I feel like a stranger on my own streets. I cannot walk my child to school because there are drug dealers doing sales on the corner and I don't want my kid to see that. I can't leave him in the park after school because there's shooting in the park and there's dirty syringes and there's needles in the park. And over and over again, they say, you got to do something. You have to fix this. And here's the thing that I think is important to remember, and you mentioned this when you talked about who the victims were. The people who are passing these tougher laws come out of a history, right? These are African-American elected officials who remember when for centuries letters like that wouldn't even be written because there wasn't any sense in the black community that the mostly white elected officials were going to give anything, give a care, right, about those complaints. 
There's a long history of under enforcement and under protection in black America, right? Southern sheriffs in cahoots with the Klan. They said, oh, this is not homicide. That's just another dead black person. And they didn't use the words black person, right? So that history of under protection, now you have this generation of African-American elected officials coming into office in the 1970s and the 1980s, right? They're bound and determined to change that. They want to respond to those letter writers. So just as you said, grasping at solutions, right? This air of desperation, and in many cases, turning towards kind of short-term fixes. In part, we have to also acknowledge they did ask for more structural reforms at the same time, right? They did also say, and I have example after example of this in the book of elected officials saying, yeah, we need more police, we need more prosecutors, we might even need more prisons, but we also need better housing, and an end to segregation, and jobs brought back to the city, and better schools, and drug treatment. But for those things, they needed the federal government to respond, right? There they needed Congress. They needed Congress to, pl- to pass a Marshall Plan for urban America, right? To reinvest in black communities the way we did in Europe after World War II. They needed Congress to pass national gun control. But Congress didn't care much about those African-American letter writers that I just told you about, and so they didn't do it. And so the people that I'm writing about in this story, I think it's fair to say they had an all of the above strategy to fighting crime and violence. They wanted to do everything. But we got in our community one of the above. And the one of the above that we got was law enforcement. We're listening to an interview with James Foreman, Jr., a professor of law at Yale and author of Locking Up Our Own, published in April by Farrar Strauss. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. And now here's part two of my interview with James Foreman, Jr., author of Locking Up Our Own from Farrar Strauss. Now that uh, police violence and and more routine harassments against black people, uh, now that this has a salience uh, in our politics that it hasn't had in decades, uh, one solution that people offer is diversifying the force, meaning more black cops. D.C. had a predominantly black police force, yet that didn't stop uh, all the harassment of poor black people, mainly young men. What are the lessons that we can learn from diversifying the police force? Is it the composition of the personnel or the structural role of the police? Well, I think it's the structural role. One of the arguments that I make in the book is that, you know, I'm still a big believer in hiring more African-American police officers. But the reason I believe in that is that we need African-Americans deserve our fair share of good jobs in this country, and police jobs are good jobs. But we need to understand this as an, as an economic argument and a fairness argument. We shouldn't understand police diversity as a mechanism or a method to, train, to change police culture. Um, because I think the evidence is that by itself, it does very little. Uh, and just as you said, I mean, one of the things that I was struck by when I was doing the research is how long African-Americans have been calling for police diversity. The first evidence that I get for it, um, and the word diversity isn't even used then, Martin Luther King Sr., the father of uh, Martin, you know, the famous uh, civil rights leader, he is calling in 1940s in Morehouse Chapel in Atlanta, he says 105,000 Negroes need one black police. That was the call to arms for African-Americans in Atlanta, which along with D.C. is the city that historically has had uh, the the largest black middle class. And there were no black officers for 105,000 black, or as they said then, Negro citizens. So the push has always been there. But I think what we saw in the 1960s and 1970s is we saw African-American officers brought into police forces but the, the forces didn't change their training, they didn't change their culture, they didn't change their methods of supervision. All of the things that we see now that help to produce this crisis of police shooting and police violence that's, that's getting so much attention, all those things remained unchanged. And we brought black officers into that system. Um, and it was unrealistic, I think, to expect that black officers were going to do anything different until we fix the system. And now we have uh, uh, an attorney general uh, and a president who are, look like they want to go back for a little, for, for, for like, seemed like 10 minutes. There seemed to be a, an outbreak of a little bit about, of reason about sentencing reform and maybe easing up uh, on, on intense policing and sentencing. 
And now that's, that's a memory, and we have a president and an attorney general who want to go back to the days of the war on weed and you know higher minimum sentences and all this business. Um, what do you think of, of Sessions and Trump and what kind of influence they're going to have on, on our, um, our criminal justice policy? Sessions is, offers and utters shockingly ill-informed pronouncements um, almost by the day. He said, I mean, one of the most obvious and really, I think, kind of grotesque misstatements was when he said that marijuana is only slightly less awful than heroin. Well, you know, last year, 13,000 people died of heroin overdoses and nobody died of marijuana overdoses. So um, when your nation's chief law enforcement says things um, that if a first year law student said them, uh, you know, we say go back and reread the material because you obviously weren't paying attention. That's a problem. Having said that, I think it's critical that we remember that Sessions' power and authority is quite limited. So the number that I would want everyone to focus on is 88. 88 is the percentage of prisoners in the United States who are in state, county, and local facilities. 12% are in the federal system. So that means that this problem is principally a state, county, and local problem. The same thing is true for law enforcement. 85% of law enforcement is state, state, county, and local, not federal. And so what that means is this is a system that was built at the state, county, and local level, and it's a system that's going to have to be dismantled at that same level. And Sessions, in some ways, is, you know, sideshow is too strong, um, but Sessions is, cannot, does not have the power to, res- to stop reform efforts at the state, county, and local level. And we've seen in recent years, including in the same November election that brought us Trump, we've seen that citizens around this country are noticing that mass incarceration is a problem, that it's immoral, and that it's costing us too much money. And they're electing local and county prosecutors who are running on campaigns of ending it, of ending wrongful convictions, of reducing the emphasis on the war on drugs. Last November, for the first time in my lifetime, progressive prosecutors won election in Florida, in Alabama, in Texas. These are tough on crime jurisdictions. In Colorado, in Chicago. Last month in Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, a civil rights attorney, won the Democratic primary for prosecutor in that city. And the Democratic primary is basically the general election because the city is overwhelmingly Democratic. He's a civil rights lawyer who ran for prosecutor on an agenda of we're locking up too many people. So these kind of victories, I mean, a guy in Texas who has the words not guilty tattooed on his chest, a defense lawyer, he ran in Texas for prosecutor and won. And so what this says to me is that the nation is starting to wake up too late, too slowly, not right, and, and, and certainly not completely. But we are seeing that the movement that has been building, you said it was for about 10 minutes. I think it's longer than that. And I think it's still building. It's a movement that's being led in many respects by people who themselves have criminal convictions or have been incarcerated, right? People like Glenn Martin in New York, like Susan Burton in Los Angeles. There's this new generation and a new breed of folks that are speaking up about their experiences and are are taking leadership positions in the fight to create a more humane uh, criminal justice system. And so I don't think Sessions is going to stop us. I'm speaking with James Foreman, Jr., author of Locking Up Our Own. And when people uh, talk about uh, criminal justice reform or sentencing reform, they typically lead with the notion of uh, showing mercy to uh, low-level drug offenses and nonviolent offenses. Most of the people in state prison are there for what are classed as violent crimes. So is it enough to talk about going easier on on low-level nonviolent offenses, or do we have to be bolder than that? We have to be bolder than that. And this is one of the things, you know, that I've been arguing for some time. Uh, You mentioned earlier, you know, a law review article that I wrote a few years ago, and it's a point that I pick up again in the book, in the last chapter of the book, where I am critical of President Obama and Eric Holder, who did a lot. They did a lot of great work in the last few years on criminal justice reform in their last few years in office. But um, they and other people who have sort of pursued this issue have tended to focus on what what we call nonviolent drug offenders. As you say, that's a majority of our prison population. It's about 20% of state prisoners in this country. 
uh, or I should say a minority of our prison population, about 20% of state prisoners in this country are drug offenders. And I think the impulse is not just, it's not just that we have the numbers wrong. It's also to me, a moral question. So one of the stories that I, I close out the book with is a story of a young man that I represented in DC named Dante and Dante, um, had committed an armed robbery. He had gone up to a man at a bus stop armed with a knife and he had robbed him and he was arrested a few blocks later with the money in his pocket and the knife in his pocket. And he was facing sentencing. And I knew that he was going to get a long sentence. The odds were that he was going to get a significant sentence. It was a serious crime. And I started calling around to various programs in the city to see if I could get somebody who would give him a chance. Because Dante did have a lot of sympathetic things in his background. His mom had been a drug addict. She had really left him to raise himself and, and, and his brother. Uh, a local gang had sort of humiliated him and then offered him protection if he had committed this robbery as a rite of initiation. And Dante was incredible with his hands. He was like this sort of master carpenter, it seemed like, in the making if somebody would just give him training. But every program I called in the city would hear my story. I would talk about how wonderful he was. And then they would say, well, what's his offense? And once I said armed robbery, they said the same thing that Obama says and that a lot of the national movement has said in recent years, which is, well, that's a violent offense and we're not going to be dealing with violent offenses right now. Eventually, I was able to, with the help of Dante's mother, actually get him into a sort of a fledgling program. And I went to talk to the man who he robbed, which is a long shot. Um, but I wanted to present him Dante's case because the man that he robbed only knew 12 seconds of Dante, right? He knew the 12 seconds of the bus stop. And I wanted him to know the rest of Dante. And I told him uh, everything that I've just said to you about Dante's background. His name was, man was Mr. Thomas. And at the, when I was done, he said he would think about it. Um, I saw him in court a few weeks later. I went up to him in the courthouse and he pulled out some papers from his pocket, crumpled. And they were, one of them was Dante's confession that he had given to the police that night, which I had given to Mr. Thomas, and also Dante's apology letter, which he had written. And he thrust these papers towards me and he said, Mr. Foreman, you asked me to forgive your client. He said, I can't, I can't do that. He said, but I am trying. And I can go along with this program that you described. And we went into court. The prosecutor was pissed. The judge was surprised. But they went along with it. The judge went along with it over the prosecutor's objection. Uh, this judge was no softy. <laughs> you had experience with him, right? Oh, no. This judge is locked up. This is no softy at all. He had locked up. I tell the story earlier in the book about a young man that he had locked up for possession of a gun who, uh, who I, had, I had argued on his behalf. And that's why I thought Dante wasn't going to make it because Dante hadn't just possessed a weapon, right? He had used it in a robbery or at least it threatened with it. He had it in his pocket, but he let the man know that he had it. So no, the judge was no softy, um, but he did go along with it in, in significant part because Mr. Thomas had come to see Dante in his fullness, right? As more than the 12 seconds at the bus stop as somebody that was worth taking a chance on. And the judge went along and that gave Dante the sentence. And then I lost track of Dante because that's what happens in the court system. You tend to lose track of the clients that don't get rearrested. You don't see them again. And years later, over 10 years after that, I was walking down the street in DC. I was walking past a construction site and I heard a voice and said, Mr. Foreman. And I looked up, it took a while because it had been so long, but it was Dante. And he came down from came down the, the elevator and and we spoke and I wanted to have a whole long chat because this was such a meaningful moment for me. But of course, I reminded Dante of of one of his you know low points in his life when he was caught up in the court system and had committed this robbery and and Dante kept it quick. But he did tell me that he had struggled mightily, but he had finally made it through the po program with this strict pastor. And he had finally gotten a full-time job. And now here he was working full-time on a construction team, raising a seven-year-old son, had not been rearrested. And when I left him that day with my eyes wet, with just overwhelmed by the emotion of the moment, I thought about the fact that he is the classic example of why these labels of violent and nonviolent don't work. We cannot have a reform agenda 
that attaches labels to people and says, if you fit in this category, then we're not going to ask any further questions because everybody has a story, right? I just told you Dante's story, but everybody has a story. I just spent two weeks in, uh, two weeks ago, I gave a book talk at San Quentin prison, uh, right outside of, of San Francisco and the guys there, everybody has a story. And so we have to have a criminal justice system and a reform movement that's dedicated to bringing humanity and bringing mercy and bringing compassion and bringing an opportunity for second chances and bringing a willingness to look at your whole story and your whole life. We have to bring that to every aspect of the criminal justice system, including the so-called violent offenders. Well, finally, I mean, you did an awful lot of work on this Dante case, uh, and uh, you also had a few lucky breaks um, in, along the way. But how can we bring that kind of insight and that approach to uh, the broader political question of criminal justice reform? Is there any way you know, to make uh, this Dante uh, a model for, for the nation at large? Absolutely. There's lots of ways. Uh, so what did, what did we offer? To Dante, right? What what did he actually get? Well, first of all, there was no mandatory minimum sentence, right? If there had been, this would be off the table. So that's a lesson. We, he also got a job, and he got access to a job training program. When my clients in the criminal justice system tell me what they most need to not be back in the criminal justice system, overwhelmingly, it is a job. And yet we barely provide any funding for good job training programs, despite the fact that all the evidence tells us that when you reenter, for example, from prison, the most powerful thing that we can help anybody get is a job. For every dollar we spend on job training and job placement, we get $5 back as a society in return. And most of that return is from the reduced recidivism. Because when people get employed, when they get hired, they overwhelmingly don't return to criminal behavior. The other thing we can do is provide education to people while they're incarcerated, right? So for the people that are going, Dante avoided being locked up. But again, the same studies show that for every dollar we spend on education for folks behind bars, and here's the point of the story, we can't limit it to a category of offender. We can't say, oh, it's only the low-level offenders. For every dollar that we spend, we get $4 in return. And the one other thing that we can do as a society, you mentioned, well, I had time to spend on the case. Well, I had time to spend on the case because I worked at a public defender's office that was well-resourced. Less than 2% of our funding in our criminal justice system goes to public defenders. If we increase that to 5% or 10%, it still wouldn't be fair, but it would be a huge contribution to making it so that everybody had a lawyer that was able to work on their case, learn the background of the client, uh, call program after program, maybe meet with the victim as appropriate, right? All the things that I did, those are things that people that can afford to hire a lawyer, the lawyer would do as a part of their job. So there's nothing extraordinary about it. It's just that until we invest in our public defender's offices, we're not gonna have lawyers that are able to do that. Um, There are some programs out there John Rapping works uh, for a program called Gideon's Promise that is working to reshape public defense throughout the South. They're doing amazing work to try to make it so that in places like Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, North Carolina, you can actually have a public defender who knows you and fights hard for you. So those are those are some of the things that I would I would put on the list for how we make Dante's story more of a model. That was James Foreman Jr., author of Locking Up Our Own from Farrar Strauss. He'll be making three appearances in the Bay Area in the coming weeks at Book Passage in San Francisco on July 19th, at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco on August 8th, and at Marcus Books in Oakland on August 13th. You can find more information on these events and others on his personal website, jamesformanjr.com. There's no E in Foreman, and Jr. is spelled J-R. And now a political coda, the conclusion of my June 2016 interview with Kayanga Yamada-Taylor, a professor of African-American studies at Princeton and author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation from Haymarket Books. Black Lives Matter really did grab the nation by its lapels and you know, force people to pay attention into ways, in ways that have not, <laughs> they, they have not in a long time. But is that enough? Can this uh, no. go from a hashtag to an or- organized movement? It, ha- it has to. 
I think that I feel very old fashioned asking that question, but it's okay. It well, it's it's the question that confronts every movement, right? Because we've gone in the last year and a half from the movement uh, has done a tremendous amount to expose the range of police violence and to expose its systemic roots, which is to say that any thinking person in this country no longer believes that police brutality is just the case of a rogue cop here or there, a bad apple, you know, a situation that got out of control. Police forces are no longer all white. They're very diverse now. And it's a complicated problem. It's about the role of the police in this society. Right. And, and so the movement, it hasn't gone that far. I don't think most people are questioning uh, whether we should have police uh, or the role of the police. But it's legitimate now that people see that there are systemic problems with policing that can't just be dealt with by a sensitivity training here or there. You think about a city like Chicago, where Rahm Emanuel's hand-picked commission released its port. And this commission was the subject of protest because uh, people wanted community representation on it, didn't get it. So it's, it's a bunch of hand-picked people from Rahm Emanuel. This commission report comes out two weeks ago and says point blank that the Chicago Police Department have no regard for the lives of people of color in the city of Chicago. This is a shocking statement that is impossible to have imagined without Black Lives Matter. However, we have now reached the point where that's no longer good enough. It was good enough to expose the movement, very good at exposing the, the problems of police brutality, but now what we are witnessing is the resilience of the political establishment to protect, to coddle its corrupt police forces, uh, its killer cops. I mean, there's some cops who get caught and, and now city governments have to, quote unquote, do something about it. But in terms of deep systemic changes, we're seeing the resistance to that. There's all kinds of evidence that point to this. Even in Chicago, where this incendiary report comes out, Rahm Emanuel's response, first is no response. He doesn't say anything publicly for about a week. And then the response is, well, we'll, we'll take up maybe a third of the recommendations of the, uh, the, the commission. We can see it when Obama's commission, his national commission report came out, I don't know, 14 months ago with 59 recommendations to quote unquote, improve policing in the 21st century. They haven't implemented any of it. And it's because the, the report itself and the commission itself had no mechanism or money uh, to implement any of it. We can see the resilience of, of the, the system and the fact that since January, the police have killed, on average, 80 people a month since January. And on and on. In, in San Francisco, you have judges protecting neo-Nazis who are on the police force, who are texting each other about hanging niggers, spaying niggers, and they can't be fired. The police chief tried to fire him, and a, and a court stepped in and said, no, you can't fire him. The system, the status quo, the political establishment is digging in around its racist killer cops. And I think it's because that is the solution to the, the problems in all of these cities is unleashing the police. The police are not out of control. The police have been unleashed. And in lieu of creating any sort of social programs, spending, any jobs, that remains the solution. Because of this, it means that the movement actually has to change its tactics. You know, six or seven people stopping traffic, having a protest, that kind of thing. It's not good enough. I mean, and I'm in solidarity with every action, all actions that, that people take to try to confront the system. But we have to think bigger. We have to think more broadly. And we have to think about what actually can be done to not just bring attention to the problems of police violence and police brutality, but what can we do to challenge it, to actually take the police out of contact with people? How can we organize around decriminalization? How can we uh, attack the grotesque amount of money that goes to police departments? In Chicago, where the city government 
likes to close schools. The police get 40% of the operating budget. That's a crime in and of itself. How do we stop that? And police unions. How do we get rid of police unions and their corrupt contracts, which codify illegal, brutal police behavior? These are the kinds of things that we have to start talking about and getting the movement back on the streets in an organized way with larger, more disruptive demonstrations that are bringing tens of thousands, not dozens, but tens of thousands of people back onto the streets. And finally, um, this is a, a complicated subject, but you don't want to be like one of these people who say all lives matter, you know, banalize and blunt, right. the, blunt the critique. But on the other hand, the number of white people killed by cops, mm -hmm. the number of white people behind bars in the U.S. is off the charts when you compare it to other countries. So how can you make this a multiracial movement without losing the sharpness of the fact that black people are just way disproportionately victimized by the police carceral state? Well, that's part of the argument of how do we build a bigger, broader movement, because I, I feel like that is a fundamental thing that we have to do. And it means uh, a few things. One, it means connecting uh, with other groups of oppressed people uh, who endure state violence. Uh, that includes um, the immigrant movement, the undocumented movement. It includes reaching out uh, and developing alliances with organizations and activist projects that are engaged against Islamophobia, so reaching out to Muslim and Arab organizations. And it also means, I think, politically making the argument that there is a place, that there is an important place uh, for white working class and poor white people in this movement. And I write some about this uh, in the book, that as you say, compared to every other country on earth, the rate at which the United States arrests and imprisons uh, white people is unprecedented. When we talk about the disproportionate ways that police kill African-Americans, uh, particularly young black men. But if we look at the numbers of people, um, and I estimate, um, based on studies open to the public that I've seen, that the police in the last almost 10 years have killed around 11,000 people, that most of those people are white people that the police have killed. Uh, and so there is an argument. Uh, to be made uh, about ordinary white people being included into this uh, movement, that they need to be uh, involved in this movement as well. This isn't about finding the common denominator that creates the least amount of controversy and turbulence within the movement. So it's not about watering down the politics to build a broader movement. It's about raising the level of politics that white people need to not just be involved in a movement against police violence because police violence also happens against white people, but it's understanding how racism may be black people's burden to bear in particular, but racism is every working person's problem in this country. If we consider that the way that the U.S. uses racism to justify its prison system and the fact that the U.S. will spend $80 billion a year to maintain that system, that is a problem for all ordinary people because that money is not going to schools, to hospitals, uh, to any public expenditures that could improve the quality of life of every ordinary person uh, in this country. It's going to keep people imprisoned. And the way they get away with it is using racism. We could see it in the debates around welfare reform in the late 1990s when Bill Clinton led the charge to end welfare reform. The most visible recollection of that period is, is Clinton signing his Personal Responsibility Act, the welfare reform, in the Rose Garden in 1996 and surrounding himself with black women to do it. Meanwhile, Clinton probably knew, but what the general public probably did not know was that the majority of people on welfare at that time were white women. And white women stood the most to lose uh, from the attacks on welfare. We see the way that racism uh, is used to justify budget cuts and to justify a social order that uh, is, is punitive and abusive 
disproportionately towards black people, but that has an impact on all people who are not rich and wealthy and part of the 1%. It is in our best interest to try and build the broadest movement possible, again, not on the lowest common denominator that creates the, the least amount of political waves, but on a high level, on winning white people in particular to anti-racism, to having them understand the way that racism not just destroys the lives of black people, but how it imperils their own lives and their own situation. And that really is the challenge of our movement in, in the next period. How do we get bigger? How do we get broader to not just expose these problems, but to actually have a material impact and transform them? That was the conclusion of my June 2016 interview with Kalani Yamata-Taylor, a professor of African-American studies at Princeton and author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation from Haymarket Books. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Another Reason to Arrest and Imprison the Free from Maurice Arata. Till next week, bye. <laughs>